This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us today. We're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis and my co-host is my trusty service dog, Whistle. And we're thrilled to be with you today to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs and working animals. And today we'll be visiting with Stan Yoakum. Stan is a suspense novelist, and his latest thriller is called Unrelenting Nightmare, The Cutthroat Work of Tech. And Stan is also a puppy raiser for Canine Companions for Independence. So we have a lot to talk with Stan about today, so come right back after these quick messages. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom-knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets on petliferadio.com Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Today we're visiting with author Stan Yoakum. Hello, Stan, and welcome to the show. Hello, Marcy. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're so excited. There's so many things for us to talk about today. But my first question for you is how in the world did you start writing thrillers, Stan? It goes back quite a while. I was thinking about writing books back when I was in high school, and that was a long time ago. And But I never did it for such a long time, and I went through 30-some years of business career and had my own company, and finally one day I just decided, you know, I'm, I'm getting up in age, and if I ever plan to do this, I'd better do it now, or I may look back and regret that I never tried. So in 2000, I set off and started writing books, and I've enjoyed every minute of it since then. Wow, that was a bold leap of, of faith. That's awesome. I think you fulfilled so many people's dreams of wanting to do that. Was it really scary? I mean, how did you get your first book published? Uh, I went through iUniverse, which is a self-publishing company, and this was back in 2004. Since then, the industry has really changed. I mean, at that time, it was relatively new to go out and do this type of effort, but uh, it was an opening for individuals who could not get attracted by the traditional publishing companies. And I tried for many years to do that. For about four, I wrote my first novel, and then uh, a number of people read it, and they said, boy, this is really good. So off I went, and I went down the traditional trail of contacting agents and writing query letters, 
letters and submitting them to both agents and publishers, and actually had a publisher who wanted to publish the book out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, but things oh. transpired. Yes, and but they were primarily doing books to put on tape. And my first book, which is called The Price Admission, was a fairly long novel. And as I did more research into the publishing company, I found that their tapes were typically no more than about two and a half hours long. And I went, whoa, that's, <laughs> that's going to be quite yeah, hard. Yeah, that won't work. Two and a half hour, yeah. But it was mainly for yeah. a flight, a short flight. They said we wanted to, for somebody that's going across the country or something like that, they can sit down and enjoy the book and then be done with it by the time they get there. And I asked them, I said, well, have, have you seen my manuscript? And they said, yeah, it's sitting right here. <laughs> I said, well, you know, it's kind of long. They said, no, we've noticed that. So I, I figured out, I go, well, you guys are going to really have to cut that back. And they said, yes. Well, that made me start thinking. I, I hadn't published a book yet, and I wanted to have a book published in its present form. In that process of dealing with the publisher, they quite often, well, they always do. If they write a contract with you, they take ownership of the book. And being a first-time writer, I wouldn't have much say in what would go on. Them. They could change the title. They can edit it as, as they please. And I said, they will basically change the whole book just to get it down to the short duration of a, of a three-hour tape. And the time frame wasn't really in my parameters either. They, they talked about it. It would probably be about a two- to three-year period, and I wanted to get a, a book out right away. So I decided not to go that way, and I went off and had it published through iUniverse. And since then, I've written seven more manuscripts. I have my second book, uh, The Unrelenting Nightmare, is out. And I have the third one on its way probably by the end of this uh, year. I'll be publishing my third book. It's something I enjoy. I love writing suspense thrillers. Well, you're right. I mean, uh, things are so different now uh, as to how you can get material out. And that's just so great that, that you did take that ownership and decide that you wanted to take, <laughs> really to do that. I get that because we create a lot of things. And I, I hear what you're saying about wanting to retain that intellectual property and intellectual freedom. <laughs> yeah, of, of making it your own. Well, so tell us, how do you create your stories? What inspires you, and how do you get them from a thought to a book? Well, each one has taken on its own, the own manner that I use to do this. My first one was based upon me as in my business environment. And as I've learned over the years, many first-time authors, when they do one, or when, many authors, when they write their first book, it typically is something about what they've done in their life because it's easy to reference to that. This book, Unrelenting Nightmare, was really based upon a example I saw back in the 60s. My first degree in college, believe it or not, was in theater arts. And then I went back to college and got a degree in, in accounting and became a CPA, and that was what my business was. Though so I never really did much work as a CPA. I did as more as turnaround work for companies. I would go in and change, help them come out of bad financial situations. But back to the 60s, I saw this presentation by one of the aerospace industries showing what lasers could do. And this is at the time when the only thing they had were like laser beam sensors that when you crossed it, it would send off an alarm and things like that. And as a theater arts student, we were sitting in the audience and this guy got up on stage and they throw all these laser beams on, on stage and there's this tree formations. It was a forest. 
And I, you know, I'm sitting there amazed. Now, it was kind of fuzzy, you, but you could certainly distinguish trees there. Uh, the gentleman walking on stage was saying, you know, I can't see anything up here. I can just see light fragments all over the place, but I don't know where a tree is. I can walk through. I mean, you could see him walking around. Well, anyway, the impression it made on me stuck with me a long time. And then when I, this was my second book that I wrote, and I started thinking about that. And I said, my gosh, knowing where virtual reality is going today, I can use that image that I had and develop a whole story behind it, and I did. Um, but something that's very unusual about the book, if you read it, um, you'll get deep into it, and then I bring the point, the poignant point that's embedded in the story of what I'm talking about with virtual reality, and that is the situation could potentially present a problem for society. Because as this develops, and I see it in the, the new games that are coming out and how realistic the animation is getting, well, in Unrelenting Nightmare, I take it beyond that. I take it into realism. But I also show the potential of where it can go from the standpoint of society using it as a entertainment means and disappearing inside a virtual reality world. And my mm -hmm. question to everyone is, what happens then when the people of this mm -hmm. country and, and around the world just want to disappear into something that they can control the outcome? I use the example of a football player, and the developer of the software system says, boy, I can, these guys can go in this room, close themselves off, and they become the player of the game and the quarterback, and they can always win and hear the crowd screaming their name and everything like that. Well, that's the point that I'm trying to make. We better be a little bit cautious about how we go about this and where we go with it because we may lose the attention of the people that are living in a world that they don't really have much fun doing in right now. So, Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. It can be addicting. Oh, I mean, the way I envisioned in my mind, it will become tremendously addicting. They will get yeah. home from work and no sooner get home than they will disappear if what I de depict comes about. And uh, mm -hmm. I've tried to show how reasonable it would become in, in the standpoint of you could embed it in a home right now uh, if you had the money to do that. And, but it's a point that I don't think a lot of people see. They just kind of read the story and go, wow, wow, really neat. That's cool. And off they go. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, there's something <laughs> I'm saying here. So listen up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something really deep. Yeah. I mean, that is interesting. And, and like you said, I mean, it would. I could see that being such an addiction on so many levels. Yeah, for so many different people. So, woo. Yeah, that sounds really good, Stan. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so as you build your characters, how do you do that? I mean, tell us about Stuart Garrison. Well, Stuart Garrison is uh, one of the main characters, and he is the gentleman who is a technological genius. I mean, he, he writes software programs, and he develops the ability to enhance what virtual reality brings to the populace. Uh, he starts off with just a standard virtual reality games and expands it into bringing the virtual reality to the three-dimensional presentation with actual people being in the scene with you. I don't want to go into too much detail because it gets kind of complex about how they sure. do all these things, but he does. <laughs> and then it's called Next World is the system he builds, and it's mainly used for businesses and bringing so that they can do conferences with each other. So this presents the, the possibility of sitting in a room and then seeing everybody else at the conference table, and they look as though they're actually there. 
I mean, no fuzziness in the thing. It's a presentation that there they are. There's the person who is sitting somewhere else across the United States. And he takes that tremendous system and puts it out on the, the public, and it just starts selling like hotcakes to all the corporations around the world. And therefore, he takes and goes on and develops what he calls mind games. And this is bringing it back mm-hmm. to the Mr. Joe Public, and so he can experience the same sensations of feeling like you're right there. And uh, that's his character, what he does, and off he goes. Well, a competitor of Mr. Stuart Garrison decides, I need that system. And so he presents an option to buy the company from Stuart, and Stuart basically laughs him down, says, nope, not interested in selling. So the other gentleman's name is um, Preston McBraid, who owns the biggest hardware manufacturing company, a computer hardware manufacturing company in the world. He goes out and, and secures the services of the infamous assassin called Nomad and tells him, go get Stuart Garrison. And because he's figured out a way if Stuart Garrison dies, I can take over control of the company. And so mm. that starts the thing, and off they go. And it, yeah. there's a number of scenes where Nomad tries to take out Stuart Garrison, and but then the other main characters, the good guys, <laughs> are in place. And I don't want to give away something there because it is kind of uh, yeah. fun to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, have, you, have you read about it? I'm you, reading it, yes. Yes, okay. I'm, I'm well, in I don't the want to process. talk about yes. all the good characters. Yes. But Alex <laughs> is one of them. And, and Alex helps Stuart through all these encounters that he has against Nomad. I enjoyed re- writing it so much. I tend to tell people when they say, how do you do these? How do you build these scenes? And I said, I tell them, I go, I get lost in it. I, I literally, I sit down and I envision the scene in my mind and I frantically try to type and keep up with it as it's developing. I certainly have an idea of where I want to go from A to Z throughout the whole book. But as the scene presents itself, I said, okay, I'm going to start here. And this is basically what's going to happen at the end. I know what has to happen. But then my mind just starts going, and it starts creating all these different actions within the scene and things that are happening. And, again, like I said, I just frantically try to type and keep up with it as my mind develops these scenes. And I enjoy that so much. It's it's where I disappear. It's it's my virtual reality room, basically. Yes, that's where I yes. go because yeah, I, I was going to say yes. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, you can I tell have, how much uh, you enjoy it. Yeah, well, it's fun. I've explained this to many people, and they sit there and they look at me and they go, uh, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> so no. again, how did you do? <laughs> but yeah, I guess you have to be there. It's yeah. how I do it. I enjoy it. I've had a lot of fun with. Like I said, I've all of my books except. Two are all suspense novels, and the two that aren't were based upon, well, first of all, when I say books, I've only published two, I have a third one in the works, and then I have additional manuscripts sitting there. So when I say books, I'm talking about the manuscripts I developed. I kept reading and researching everything. They said, you want to, you know, write a blockbuster, you you want to want, or not a blockbuster, but a, a book that sells, write a romance novel. And I'm going, romance novel? And they go, yes, that's what sells, I mean just all over the place. They, they, and then they start listing all the people and that have done it and how many novels they've done. And they start talking in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80 novels they've written and all of them are right up there. Well, that wasn't what's drawing me. It never has. I tell all my people at iUniverse and my publicists and everything, I said, my desire right now is, is not to make a lot of money. What I would like to do is become known as an author. 
and that yeah. I write good stories. If if that becomes what pushes my books to sell, then fantastic. What I really want to do is have people read them like yourself, sit down, enjoy it, and then mm-hmm. be able to say, boy, that was a good novel when you're finished with it. But yeah. I thought, what the heck, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and try to write a romance novel. And oh. So I did. And I did. And I wrote, and this is one of the, one of them was, well, it was only two books past that I've written. And I went, uh, when I got done with it, I said, of all the novels I have written, that has been the most fun. And I oh. kept questioning myself and said, yeah, why is that? I mean, you love suspense. I mean, that's what, those are the kind of books that I read. <laughs> and I said, because it is an emotional thing for all of us, something we all want, yeah. something we all yes. strive for, and absolutely yep. You know, love to be in. Well, when I was writing it again, I'm sitting there, these scenes are going, and it's the first time I actually used music. I played music because it's about two artists. One is a singer and the other is a composer. And so I played ah. music in the background. And this spurred my thoughts and everything. And when I got done, it takes, it takes me about, oh, six months to nine months to write the, the basic draft of a manuscript. Then, then mm-hmm. there's the editing process, and we don't want to get into that because that takes forever. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. But in that time frame, <laughs> I really look forward to it, and it's the one that I tell people. I sit back and I go, you don't see me as this type of a person, I don't think. And I don't think most, <laughs> many people do, but I go, it was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed it. And uh, That's awesome. So, well, is that the third it, one it, that you're it, about to publish? No, no. No, I, I'm still going down the trail of how I wrote them. My okay. first book was, um, yeah, A Price of Admission. The second one was uh, Unrelenting Nightmare. The third one is going to be Hostile Takeover. And oh, that is okay. already in the process. It's mm. sitting there waiting to be done. And then there's going to be a fourth one. Anyway, it goes on. And, but yeah. I've, been talking, I've been talking to my main editor, and she said, well... I've looked at your the books that you have, and this is one thing she says is very attractive about you, is that a lot of publishers, they look at an author and they say, wow, this is really a good book. But our concern is, is this author a one-book wonder? Right. Will he yeah. or she only be able to write this one book? And she goes, I've seen the synopsis of your books and everything. I've read now, she's read three or four of them in in, in a manuscript form and then actually the publication of them. And she goes, if you continue on like this, this is something that's that's going to draw attention from a publisher. She goes, but mm-hmm. tell me about this one. It's called Duplicity. She goes, tell me about this one. And I said, well, that one, that'll knock your socks off at the end of it because it, it just goes down a, a track that people sitting there, I understand, this is great, great. And then at the end, it just slams you in the face because it just makes this big 180-degree turn. And she goes, well, depending upon how Unrelenting Nightmare goes in your next book, you may want to take that out of sequence and throw it up here in front. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Ah, but I do. Okay. I would like to. I would like to get one of my romance novels out there. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you know what? Well, we are going to take just a quick break, and we're going to come back and keep talking with Stan because we want to hear more about his work, and we want to hear about the puppies that he's been raising. So come right back after these quick messages. We'll be right back right after these messages. Stay tuned. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) 
Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Today we're visiting with Stan Yoakum, and we've been hearing all about his incredible work that he's doing on his books. But there's one burning question that I've had, Stan, that I, I want you to tell me and our listeners about your canine companions for Independence Puppy that you are raising. I'd love to. I think people ask me, you, you, do you really enjoy writing? I said, yes, but the, the actual joy of my life is raising these little puppies and um, through canine companions for independence. Uh, it's a privilege, and I have never experienced anything so wonderful as going through this and seeing what these dogs do for what the organization calls the graduates, the people who actually receive the dogs, which help them through the rest of the dog's life. Um, yeah. Well, how did you decide yeah. to do it? How did you become a puppy raiser? Yeah, it wasn't my idea. It was my wife's. <laughs> she said, she goes, I would love to do this. And I said, you know, I, there's no way I can raise a puppy dog and then give it away. Basically, you get a dog when they're like seven to eight weeks old and you keep them for 18 months and you train them in about 35 commands and then you turn them back into the organization. The dog then goes through a six-month professional training period and if they make it through that, they will be assigned to an individual, typically in a wheelchair, but somebody who is dependent upon the services of a dog. And these services are unbelievable. They will, these dogs will pick up things off the floor. They will open doors. They will turn on lights. They, they actually do hearing dogs, too, that help people that cannot hear. It's a phenomenal thing. But, again, going back to me doing it originally, it was very difficult, and I get asked this question all the time. How do you turn the dog in after you've had it for 18 months? And I said, it's, it's, it is tough, and like my wife says, you cry for a month before and you cry for a month after. <laughs> and, uh, you do. Yeah. It is just very difficult, but the organization Canine Companions for Independence is phenomenal, and they do a very smart, tactical thing in their development of, of Razors of us people, they constantly put the graduates in front of us. And these graduates <laughs> tell us what these dogs do. And I sit there and I go, if I can't give up a dog to help oh. somebody, you know, that's a horrible example of who I am. So I have done, we have yeah. done three. We are going to pick up okay. our fourth one probably sometime in November. I oh, so soon. My, my first dog went with a young girl up in Utah who is in a wheelchair, and it is just, we, we are well, in contact great. with them. 
Well, tell us about the one you have right now, because you have one right there with you now, right? Yes. Well, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, fortunately for me, if they do not make it through the the professional training, the six-month of professional training, as the puppy raiser, we get first rights of refusal on them. So five months into her development, and her name is Tawny, I got a call on the phone. And of all the dogs that we've been involved with, she was the smartest, the most energetic from the standpoint of being able to do a lot of things. And we just thought, you know, she's just going to fly through this program. And they called me and said, she's just shut down. And would you like mm. her back? Well, before they can hang up the phone, I was there. <laughs> um, yes, of course. But, <laughs> yeah. The, basically, what they said is that she just got homesick. After five months of working with these trainers and learning what to do and seeing what they wanted her to do and then doing it all of a sudden one day, I mean, literally, it was one day she just shut down. And the trainer was telling me, he says, I, I took four dogs, her and three other dogs, and we went out to Home Depot, and I have all four sit, and then I grab one, and I start walking through the store and having them do things because we try to expose them to society so that they will be out there and be comfortable in the, all these environments that they have to deal with, but still be working with the person that they're attached to. And I got to Tawny's turn, and I turned to her, and I said, Tawny? And she just sat there, and he went, whoa. So he came back and talked to everybody at the organization, and they said, well, try it again. Let's see what happens. And after about three days, they said, nope, she just shut down. They said, we've seen it before. The dog Mm -hmm. just all of a sudden decides, I don't want to do this anymore, and I want to go Mm -hmm. back to my original pack. And CCI, or Canine Companions for Independence, will not force a dog to be something they don't want. And so they called me, and I, I now have her. And She's sitting out oh. here asleep listening to me. So, but, Lucky um, you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I got the best of both worlds. I have trained some, and I have sent them off, and they've been placed, and I have one of my own who, as I bring in new puppies all the time, she helps them. She shows them what to do. I will give the little puppy a command, like we use the word hurry when we want them to go to the bathroom outside or something like that. And uh, the little guy will be sitting there looking at you going, what are you talking about? And she will go up <laughs> and demonstrate. She'll walk up and start, you know, do, and then he'll go, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I see what you mean. And, of course, mm-hmm. there's praise every time they do it. Then you all, oh, good boy or good girl and everything. And they pick up on it very quick. The, it's lovely. The organization yeah. Yeah, has wonderful breeding systems. So these dogs come out very smart when they start off, and they learn very quickly. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, CCI is really a wonderful, wonderful organization. Well, have you thought about putting a putting a puppy or putting the puppy raising aspect or service dogs into one of your novels? Okay, uh, I'm asked that question all the time. My my, my daughters, I okay. I have, uh, my two daughters have told me that. My they help me a lot in books. Well, my oldest daughter, Shannon, she reads a lot of my manuscripts as a first run. Just tell me what you think and how does it flow and everything like that. Oh, nice. And we have read a number of books written specifically from dogs' standpoint. And I just said I. I haven't been able to figure out how, it certainly wouldn't, I mean, it could, I mean, I could probably come up with something to fit it into a suspense novel, but how I feel about them, it is much more emotional level, and I think most people do. I mean, they become just a critical part of our lives and everything. They're just like a child, and and that's how you feel about them. So the story I'd have to write would be more on that vein, and I haven't been able to do it yet, but definitely it is in the back of my mind. 
and I don't know if you're aware, but Dean Kuntz, the author, is associated Mm -hmm. with Canine Companions, and uh, he's written some great books. And I mean, what that man Mm -hmm. does for Canine Companions is just phenomenal. His yeah, books yeah. and everything like that. So wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, man. it's wonderful. Um, well, it does so yeah. much to educate people. I love it when they include any information because it creates such awareness and education for people that don't have any experience into the the whole service dog world as a puppy raiser or right. as a recipient. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's and so your, your next that's part of our job is to try to train the public too in what these dogs absolutely do. so spend a lot of time talking and and they, the CCI warned us or informed us. I said when you go out and take these dogs shopping because we take them everywhere restaurants, hotels, planes, buses, boats, everywhere <laughs> we go they're with us constantly. They said when you go through to do your shopping, expand it by times three because everyone's going to that's stop. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and so you get used to it, and I feel like when I do, when somebody comes up and says, tell me about this, I go, I'm educating somebody, and they will become more aware of how to respond when you see somebody with one of these dogs. Don't run up and start petting them and everything. Please ask. I always say, please ask the pet. We're usually more than happy to have you pet them, but they are working at that time, and so they have to be aware of what their recipient needs. So it's a great experience. I love talking about them, and I love, you know, personally, I love showing them off because they can do anything I ask them to sit. <laughs> yes, down, it's stay, incredible. Walk, you know, you know. <laughs> I know they make it look so easy, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they yes, they do. One of the best things I was actually taking pictures. My wife took our first dog, Willow to a parade down in San Diego, and they had 26 dogs out there with their owners with them. And I was in the crowd watching this as they went by, and they would stop, and then the director of the, the group would say things, okay, I want you to have all your dogs sit. Well, you see these people, and from the sidelines, you can't hear anybody say anything, but you just have these people, and then all of a sudden, simultaneously, 26 dogs go into a sit position, and then they go into a <laughs> down position. And the people are sitting there going, holy cow. How are these dogs doing that? They're doing it all at the same time. And you can't it's because impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, speak very softly. Dogs can hear. So you don't have to scream anything. Just go sit down and they will. They'll pick up. And so yeah. they can really hear that from about 15, 20 feet away. They can't hear a thing. So. And I'm sitting there looking. I'm going, boy, that is impressive. <laughs> yeah. Dogs yeah. Doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> I know when I got my first service dog, they told us that we had to do puppy push-ups is what they called it. And we had to sit there and do a sit, a down, a sit, down. Yeah. 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 And it was like puppy push-ups. It was so cute. That's what they called (laughs) it. I've never heard that. cute. I'll I'll tell my wife that. That's neat. You know, they, um, yeah, the, the uh, graduates that have got them, uh, just amazing what these dogs will do with them for them. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, responsive it is. and just so caring. You know, yeah. Guys. Well, I have had such a nice time visiting with you, Stan, and unfortunately, our time is coming to an end, but I do want to ask you one thing before we go, and that is how can our listeners get a copy of Unrelenting Nightmare or your other books? What's the best way for them to get that? In their hands? Well, the first thing is to know my name, and it's Stan, S-T-A-N, Yoakum, Y-O-C-U-M, and I have a website under stanyoakum.com, and you can also get my books on Amazon, or you can go into most retail outlet stores and order it through them also, but Amazon is about the best. They get the best prices and everything, and uh, put my name in or put the name of the book, which is, in this case, The Unrelenting Nightmare, 
and you can buy it there. On my website, you can read a little bit about me and see what I do, and I have a blog, and then I have the two books that I do have published with a little purchase icon right next to it. Push it, and it takes you right off to Amazon, and you can buy it that way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and we hope you'll come back and and tell us more about the puppies you're raising and your future books. Yeah, congratulations on both. Yeah. Thank you, Stan. Okay, Marcy. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. We appreciate you joining us. And we also appreciate those emails. So please keep those coming. We love to hear from you. And remember, you can also follow Working Like Dogs on Facebook and Twitter. So thank you and thank our sponsors for making our show possible. And we look forward to being with you again soon. Take good care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.